Today's episode contains explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Danalyzed, an arts and entertainment analysis podcast. Hello, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of Danalyzed, the podcast where we break down topics related to the worlds of both art and entertainment. I'm your host, Dan Hoy, and today's episode is entitled Seeing Red, Art and Artistry as Explored in John Logan's Tony Award-Winning Play. Now today we'll be asking a lot of divisive questions, many of which have no clear answers. What is the purpose of art? How should art be consumed? What is the line between artistry and pretension? We'll dive into all of this and more on today's episode of Danalyzed. episode is going to be a little different than prior episodes. Uh, in prior episodes, we discussed very specific themes and concepts and then turned to external sources and the source material itself to kind of give more concrete answers to the problems that were being addressed. Today, a lot of the questions that we're going to be asking and discussing don't necessarily have clear-cut answers. A lot of it lives in the gray area. So we're going to start the same way. I'm going to give you guys some background. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about Mark Rothko, uh, who is the centerpiece of John Logan's Red. We're going to talk a little bit about John Logan. And then we're just going to jump in and start asking questions um, and sort of give point, counterpoint, lots of pulling from the show today. The show does a very good job about presenting an argument and then presenting the opposite of that argument. Um... There are, for the most part, there are no right or wrong answers in today's podcast. Uh, But I think that these discussions are incredibly important because it helps us frame the way that we view art, that we view entertainment, that we view um, theater, movies, books, TV. And the way that John Logan does it in this show and the way that he addresses the big questions is really, really impressive. So with all that said, let's jump right in. Uh, a little bit about Mark Rothko, who was is the painter who is focused upon in this piece. Now, I could do an entire episode on Rothko alone, so this is going to be a nice little brief synopsis of who he is. But if you do want to learn more about him, absolutely do so. You can Google him. You can find his artwork. You can find his background. You can find his history. You can find his impact. He has, he has provided so much into the world of modern art, uh, so definitely give him a look. But just a little bit about him for the purposes of today's podcast. Uh, He was born Marcus Yakovlevich Rothkowitz. He is of Lithuanian Jewish descent. Uh, He immigrated from Russia in 1913, uh, and he was always known to be highly intelligent. Uh, He spoke four languages. He graduated from high school with honors. Uh, He had a scholarship to go to Yale University. Uh, he actually ended up dropping out in his sophomore year because he viewed the the school, the student body, the faculty as too elitist and racist. Um, he began his artistic journey in 1923 when he saw art students sketching a model at the Art Student League of New York, and he was one of the defining voices in abstract expressionism. Now, what is abstract expressionism? Well, pulling from the Tate Museum's definition... Quote, abstract expressionism is the term applied to new forms of abstract art developed by American painters such as Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko, and William de Kooning in the 1940s and 50s. It is often characterized by gestural brushstrokes or mark-making and the impression of spontaneity. Now, I could do, again, an entire episode talking just about abstract expressionism and the art form and where it came from and the purposes But for our sake, we're going to be discussing specifically Mark Rothko's style. Uh, He was deeply interested in religion, mythology, and created very simple compositions. Uh, Usually, you would see a lot of his uh, work with just rectangles of color. And the purpose was to create a contemplative or uh, a space of meditation for the viewer. You, you had to work as the viewer just as much as he had to work to create the piece. Um, so a lot of it's about interpretation. A lot of it is about creating a feeling, an aura, so on and so forth. 
Now, the show covers a very specific time in Rothko's life. Uh, in 1958, the Seagram Corporation reached out and commissioned him to create a series of murals for their new restaurant, The Four Seasons, uh, which was to be in their brand new building, the Seagram Building. And they offered him $35,000 to make these murals. Now, by today's standards, that's over $312,000. That's an obscene amount of money. Uh, and he accepted he agreed to do it, which surprised a lot of people. He had been a very outspoken critic of commercialism and creating art uh, for purposes other than just creating art. And um, in another turn of events, <laughs> he ends up finishing the murals. Then he goes to eat at the Four Seasons. And he's so disgusted by his experience there that he ends up saying, quote, anybody who will eat that kind of food for those kind of prices will never look at a painting of mine. He sent back the money and kept the murals for himself. Now, there's a lot of speculation surrounding why he did that. Uh, a lot of people argue, well, he knew what the commission was. He knew that it was, it was meant to be, you know, something people looked at while they ate. Why would he, where did this change of heart come from? Where, why was he not perceptive about that at the beginning? And that's how we're going to transition into John Logan, who tries to answer some of those questions um, within his play. Uh, John Logan is an award-winning writer. He has a Golden Globe and a Tony. He is an Academy Award, Emmy, and BAFTA nominee. Uh, he premiered Red in 2009 with Alfred Molina and Eddie Redmayne. Uh, the version that I watched a lot while I was researching this is actually on Broadway HD, and that one is Alfred Molina and Alfred Enoch, who you might know from the Harry Potter series, actually. So Red takes place during the creation of the Seagram murals, and introduces a fictional character named Ken, who acts as Rothko's studio assistant in the show. And through the interactions between these two men, Logan tries to answer a lot of the questions surrounding the commission, such as why did he take it on in the first place? What was the process of creating this artwork like? Why did he eventually turn down the commissions? What led him to that point? And in the process, asks a lot of big questions about art, artistry, commercialism, etc., so, without further ado, let's jump right on in. Uh, first and foremost, the first big question we're going to be discussing today, what is the purpose of art? Why does art exist? Uh, and we're going to be breaking these down into a couple of smaller questions that we'll then dive into. So the first little subsection here, um, must art always be serious and significant? And you see a very sharp divide here between Ken and Rothko throughout the show, um, Rothko does believe that all art should invoke deep thought. It should hurt a little bit. You should rip open your soul and uh, really begin to just contemplate the greater questions in life. Ken, on the other hand, thinks that sometimes you just want to escape, and that's still artistry. That's still art. That's still something that someone took time to create and to, and to mold. In fact, after listening to years of Rothko talk about how art has to be serious. It has to be, it has to be life-changing. He eventually says in scene four of the play, quote, you know, not everything has to be so goddamn important all the time. Not every painting has to rip your guts out and expose your soul. Not everyone wants art that actually hurts. Sometimes you just want a fucking still life or landscape or soup can or comic book. And I think his point there is just art doesn't have to be painful Art doesn't have to be immense. It can be something simple and beautiful, and that can also be impactful. Now, in my opinion, I think that it's kind of a balancing act. Um, I don't think the work always has to be serious. I mean, you can do a comedy. You can make something hilarious. You can make something that allows people to escape. But the artist should always take their work seriously, because if they don't put the time, the energy, the commitment, the care into creating that piece, how can you ever expect a viewer or an audience member to do the same? Um, and I think that that's something that uh, a lot of people sort of push by the wayside. They think, oh, you know, the content isn't as serious, so I don't have to take it as seriously. And I do think that that hurts, hurts the piece itself, um, hurts whatever you're creating. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more when we get into the differences between art and entertainment and where they can overlap. Um, but for now, all I'll say is 
take your work seriously, but that does not mean your work has to be serious. Now, again, today's podcast is going to be a lot of me giving my opinions on these things. Uh, but if you don't agree with me, please reach out. Uh, pop on over to our Instagram, uh, at Dan underscore Elized, and, and say so. I, I think that disagreement often creates conversation. And with topics like this, I think the more that we discuss, the more that we can shape our worldview and the more that we can uh, grow and learn. And so, yeah, if you don't agree, pop on over to Instagram, let me know, and maybe that'll be a future episode. You know, we'll have people call in or something. Um, So anyway, to finish up that first question, uh, is one of the purposes of art to always be serious and significant? Um, I personally don't believe so. I I don't think that art always needs to be life-changing. I don't think that art always needs to be serious. But again, I will say, I think that the artist always needs to take their work seriously. So, on to the next little question within this subsection. Um, Under what is the purpose of art? uh, Is it to entertain or is it to invoke thought or or both? Um, And that leads us to the idea of art versus entertainment. Now, I do believe that those are two separate genres that can overlap, but don't always. Um, Art requires that, just like we were talking about a minute ago, art requires that the artists take their work seriously, that they really take time, energy, and care into creating what they're putting out. Um, And I think entertainment is strictly for the viewer's enjoyment. It, It allows the viewer to escape. It doesn't necessarily always invoke any thought. It's just something they can have. If it's a TV show, it's something they can have on and not think about. If it's a piece of art, it looks pretty. It looks nice. It, you know, and actually we're going to be going into a monologue in a little bit here, uh, where Rothko rips into that concept. Um, but you do see an overlap when something can be both entertaining for the viewer, something that they can enjoy, and that uh, brings them that escape while also being married to the care that the artist brings. But I firmly believe that they do not always overlap. Uh, On the one hand, art can sometimes hurt. Like, it can be painful. It can be uh, vindictive. It can show things about life that are ugly and, and hard to look at. And that's not inherently entertaining. You're not escaping from the ills of the world. You're actually diving deeper into the ills of the world. Um, And that, like, so my mother and I are both people that really enjoy that kind of thing. We want to watch the shows that are going to sort of rip your heart open and make you think about things or, you know, going and seeing that, uh, that exhibition that, that it's like one big protest piece. You know, you want, you want to leave feeling as though, you've addressed something, that you've thought about something. On the other hand, uh, sometimes there are people that, that just want to be able to turn their brains off. You know, they just want to be able to sit down and enjoy something without it, you know, bashing them over the skull with all of the evils and ills of the world. Uh, my dad's very much so like that. Um, he, he really enjoys stories that have a happy ending. You know, he, he wants to see the artwork that looks really beautiful. And it's because he's like, there's already enough shit in the world. Why would I want to sit down and continue to look at all of the shit of the world when I could spend time escaping and doing something else? Now, Rothko hates this kind of viewer. He hates the people that are seeking strictly entertainment. Um, I'm going to give you this monologue here. It's, it's very long, but it explains better than I can his, his view on, on people seeking entertainment and escape. He says, quote, pretty, beautiful, nice, fine. That's our life now. Everything's fine. We put on the funny nose and glasses and slip on the banana peel and the TV makes everything happy and everyone's laughing all the time. It's all so goddamn funny. It's our constitutional right to be amused all the time, isn't it? We're a smirking nation, living under the tyranny of fine. How are you? Fine. How was your day? Fine. How are you feeling? Fine. How did you like the painting? Fine. Want some dinner? Fine. Well, let me tell you, everything is not fine. Then he looks to his paintings and says, How are you? 
How is your day? How are you feeling? Conflicted? Nuanced? Troubled? Diseased? Doomed? I am not fine. We are not fine. We are anything but fine. Look at these pictures. Look at them. You see the dark rectangle like a doorway, an aperture, yes, but it's also a gaping mouth letting out a silent howl of something feral and foul and primal and real. Not nice. Not fine. Real. A moan of rapture, something divine or damned, something immortal, not comic books or soup cans, something beyond me and beyond now and whatever it is, it is not pretty, it is not fine. I am here to stop your heart, you understand that? I am here to make you think I am not here to make pretty pictures. Now, in Rothko's mind, entertainment is moot. Entertainment is pointless. Entertainment is worthless because he views it as wasted time. It's not real. It's not visceral. Now, is he correct? You know, Ken doesn't seem to think so. As we talked about earlier, Ken says, no, art doesn't have to hurt. Art doesn't have to be serious and and this huge, significant thing. He actually says, quote, not all art has to be psychodrama. And it's funny because then Rothko responds with, well, doesn't it? And it's funny because you see that dichotomy between those two men throughout the whole piece. Um, I personally find myself siding with Ken on a lot of on a lot of this. Um, I think that entertainment has a place in the world and that there can still be artistry and entertainment. Um, and I think a good way to look at it in in today's terms is uh, looking at the media that you are consuming day to day and thinking about the artistry behind the entertainment. For example, um, do we think that a lot of these big blockbuster superhero films have artistry behind them? Uh, how about your favorite sitcom or your favorite, you know, page turner, you know, your favorite book? Um, I personally believe that you can see a very clear divide <laughs> between when art is involved within your entertainment and when entertainment was just created as a cash grab. Now, we will be talking about commercialism later on in this podcast, so I'm going to avoid that for now. But, for example, um, look, at, look at Joker. Look at Todd Phillips' Joker. Uh, look at Joaquin Phoenix's performance in that. And, and look at the amount of care and energy and effort that was put into creating that piece. Now, you could argue that that film was originally created as a piece of entertainment. Superheroes are hot right now. Joker is particularly in right now. Um... But they made it into something that transcended sort of just the general entertainment category, in my opinion. Now, is that to say that things are not created strictly for entertainment? Of course not. So there is a lot of stuff that's just thrown out there, given no care, given no thought. That is so, oh, people will like this and just, you know, produce it. Now, I'm not going to get into those because I'm not here to tear down any of these pieces. But, but they definitely exist. Uh, to go back and answer, you know, the, the bigger, broader question, though, uh, what is the purpose of art, and is it to entertain, or is it to invoke thought? I think the answer is that it can do both. You know, there is art that, that entertains, and there is art that invokes thought, and they both have a place in the universe. I think that the defining factor of what makes it art is, was care given to the piece itself, or was it always about just creating something that was going to sell? And that is going to segue later on into commercialism and, and how that then impacts the creation of work. Um, but art without artistry, without care, without passion is not art. That is just entertainment. Now, moving on to the next big question. Uh, can artists be both famous and inventive? You hear all the time about the starving artist trope. You know, the best art is created through suffering um, but is that true? Is, is that the case? Or can people become successful and still create poignant art? Um, a lot of this discussion is introduced through uh, Jackson Pollock's death, uh, which Rothko and Ken talk about a lot. Ken was a huge admirer of Pollock. Rothko was a friend of Pollock. And um, at one point, Rothko says, you know, well, it's too bad he committed suicide. And Ken goes, well, that's, how do you know he committed suicide? It was, it was a car crash. And Rothko says, you know, he's been committing suicide for a while. It was a slow suicide. Um, and, you know, he had fallen deeper into depression. He had, you know, relied more on drinking and, and drugging. And, 
while that had been a part of his lifestyle through his artistry, it was coming more from a place of um, separation from, from the viewer. And about that, Rothko says, quote, he no longer believed there were any real human beings out there to look at his paintings. You know, here's a schmuck from Wyoming who can paint. Suddenly, he's a commodity. He's Jackson Pollock. Let me tell you, kid, that Oldsmobile convertible really did kill him, not because it crashed, but because it existed. Why the fuck did Jackson Pollock have an Oldsmobile convertible? Artists should starve. Well, except me. Um, <laughs> and it's funny because, I mean, he has that little last, except me, because he's taking this commission. It's, it's total hypocrisy that entire time. But he brings up an interesting point. You know, if, if Jackson Pollock is just creating work to sell the work, is he really creating work from, you know, an internal place? Is he creating art because he wants to say something about the world or is he doing it so he can make a buck? You know, and, and also another factor is, you know, once you start becoming famous, you start, you start getting this immense pressure. You know, you're always having to create the next big thing. It's, it's not just about creation anymore. It's about doing quote unquote better than before. And the reality is that art in any form is subjective. So what is better? You know, what is greater? No one really knows. And that can kind of, that can get to you eventually. Um, you know, a little bit later in that same scene, uh, he says again, Rothko says again about Pollock, quote, at his worst, you still loved him. You loved him because he loved art so much. He thought it mattered. He thought painting mattered. Does not the poignancy stop your heart? How could the story not end in tragedy? Goya said, we have art that we may not perish from truth. Pollock saw some truth but then he didn't have art to protect him anymore. Who could survive that? As he became more famous, he saw people buying his art to be an, an, a mantelpiece, to be a piece of decoration, not as an examination of life, not as, um, not as a piece that, that was supposed to show anything about the human condition, but just as decoration. And I think that that killed Pollock, and so does Rothko. He, he says you know, that tore him apart. And so, in terms of the question, does fame destroy an artist? I, I think in some ways, yeah. I mean, destroy is a strong word. Um, I don't think that it always completely obliterates an artist or their career or their work. But I think that it can be a huge uh, detriment in some situations, depending on how you approach it. You know, I, I think that once artists begin to create art strictly for external reasons and no longer for intrinsic reasons, you're, you're of course going to see a deterioration in quality because it's no longer about creating something that they're passionate about. It's about maintaining their fame, maintaining the status quo, bringing in more viewers, you know. And this is where I think the artist can take a little bit more responsibility. Um, you know, you can't let your artistry become defined by fame or, or your desire to become famous. And... And yes, of course, I totally get it. You know, you need to pay your rent, you need to eat, you need to pay bills. As an artist, you're going to do a lot of commissions. As as a performer, you're going to do a lot of shows, regardless of whether or not you necessarily care about those projects or that you're passionate about those projects. But at the end of the day, if you lose your your artistic core, the thing that you're passionate about, the thing that, that brought you into the field in the first place, then of course you're going to go insane. Of course you're going to become depressed because... Passionate people need to be doing the things that they're passionate about. Like, period, the end. And artists are <laughs> very passionate people. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, in terms of the question, does fame detriment artistry? I, I think that when it becomes the new, the new core of your life, yes. Yes, it can. Now, if you're able to maintain yourself as an artist while becoming famous, great. And people have. Many people have. But it's definitely a hurdle that you have to overcome. So moving on now to the next big topic. Um, how does fear impact artistry? Um, you know, you see a lot throughout the show of Rothko talking about his fear of, of death, of insignificance, of being overshadowed by the new generation. Uh, it's, it's interesting, though, because he talks early on in the show about how he and his contemporaries literally stomped the cubists to death. Uh, about the cubist, he says, quote, tragic, really, to grow superfluous in your own time. You know, the child must banish the father. Respect him, but kill him. But then later on in the show, 
uh, in I believe it's in scene four. He comes in and he says, uh, screaming into the room and just says, you know, they're trying to kill me. I swear to God, they're trying to kill me, those prosaic insects. And he's talking about the new generation, the people that are now in being hung on the walls next to him. And, um, you know, it's interesting because I think that that fear very directly impacts his his artwork. And that brings up the question of um, does fear bolster or destroy creativity? And I think that the answer lies within context. Um, so on the one hand, uh, you have his sort of uh, Rothko's fear of insignificance or, or death. And that does very directly impact his work. And I think in a way it does bolster it. You know, he talks about um, in scene two, he says, quote, there's only one thing I fear in life, my friend. One day the black will swallow the red. Uh, in scene three, he says, I'm really scared of the absence of light, like going dead, because black is the opposite of red, not on the spectrum, but in reality. And it's interesting because then you see in his artwork and throughout the show, you're seeing uh, different layers of paint going on and, and the piece changing and morphing. And it, in a way, bolsters his creativity because he's now taking these emotions and putting them onto the canvas and he's creating something with it, you know? Um... On the other hand, I think that he does have some fear that actually impedes his creative process. And that is the fear of then what the world will think about his artwork. Um, he says in scene four, quote, I do get depressed when I think about how people are going to see my pictures if they're going to be unkind. Selling a picture is like sending a blind child into a room full of razor blades. It's going to get hurt, and it's never been hurt before. It doesn't know what hurt is. So, essentially, he's afraid of that point where you have to then take the thing that you've created and share it with other people. And that is so common for artists, especially people that have dedicated immense amounts of time and energy and attention into their work. Because you now have to take this thing that you care about so deeply, that, that you have put your blood, sweat, and tears into and show it to someone or a multitude of people who might look at it and go, eh, what's the point? It's worthless. It's not good. Uh, I don't understand it. And it's interesting because I think, you know, it's, it's funny as particularly with, with Rothko's work. Um, he says earlier on in the play, and I, I didn't pull this quote in my research, but I'm just remembering it now. You know, people would joke that, Oh, like I go to see him in my gal, like in the gallery, and my my kindergartner could do this, you know. And I mean, imagine something that you've put all of this energy and time and emotion into being derided as something a child could do, you know. That's I think the fear that he has, that ends up ultimately impeding a lot of what he does, because as much as he claims to not care about what people think, I think he cares very deeply. About what people think. It's why he's always deriding his viewers. It's why he's saying, you know, no one wants to see my work because they just want to see nice things. They just want to see pretty things. They're just all they're the bourgeoisie. They just want it. They just want it for class. They don't care about my work. They don't understand my work. When in reality, he he does very deeply care about what what they have to say because it's it's validating. I think everyone wants some form of validation and. While, of course, that should never be the core of why you're creating something, um, it feels good when you create something and someone goes, wow, this meant something to me. You know what I mean? And that's really what Rothko wants more than anything in the world is to create work that impacts his viewer. And I think his biggest fear is that he's going to put it out there and people are just going to go, I'm not impacted by it. It's, it's, you know, it's stupid. It's pedantic. It's simple. It's, you know. Um, so in that way... I think that fear ends up seeping into his artwork a lot of the time. And I think it's one of the big reasons why he ultimately doesn't send it out to the four, uh, to the four seasons. Um, you know, I think in the show it's, it's, it's a little bit more praised as, you know, oh, he's fighting against commercialism. But in my mind, I think it's he went to the four seasons, he saw how, where it was going to be displayed and the environment in which it was going to be displayed and realized people aren't even going to notice it. Or if they do, they're just going to dismiss it. And that's not good enough for my artwork. And we're going to get into, in a minute, the difference between, you know, artistry and pretension, which I think plays into that a little bit as well. 
But um, yeah, it's fascinating to watch how that that all sort of weighs down on him. And it's it's interesting too because eventually Ken kind of calls him out on it because the entire show he's been very arrogant and dismissive and demeaning. And he remember that long monologue from that I gave earlier on. I won't do it again. Um, but after he goes on that whole rampage about how art is just you know everything's nice and fine and pretty and that he's trying to just make people feel things he doesn't want he doesn't want to make pretty pictures. Ken responds very plainly and he just says quote. So said the cubist, the second before you stomped him to death. And then he ends up actually quoting um, Rothko from earlier in the show, saying, Tragic to grow superfluous in your own lifetime, right? The child must banish the father, respect him but kill him. Isn't that what you said? You guys went after the cubists and the surrealists, and boy did you love it. And now your time has come and you don't want to go. Well, exit stage left, Rothko, because pop art has banished abstract expressionism. I only pray to God they have more generosity of spirit than you do and allow you some dignity as you go. And then he looks to his painting that he's been working on you know, throughout the entire show. They're, out, they're coming up on two years now. And he says, Consider the last gasp of a dying race. Futility. So he literally calls him out on, on his biggest insecurity, I think, at this point in the show. And that's being... He's become insignificant in his own time, in his mind, and um, and yeah, I mean that the the impact that that has on an artist is is immense. So uh, moving on now to our next big topic, uh, where is the line between artistry and pretension? <laughs> um, and I think that the show addresses this a lot. Um, and I, for me personally, I think that the answer is. It's a little bit blurry, but I think that it comes in how you view yourself compared to other artists or other creators. Um, You're allowed to critique other pieces of art, you know, other works. You're allowed to enjoy other pieces of art and other uh, other works. But the second that you start telling other people what they can or cannot enjoy, that's where I think you start getting into pretension. Um, I also think that the second that you start putting yourself on this elevated pedestal uh, above and over people that's where you start getting into pretension. So it's no longer, oh, like these are the things I liked, these are the things I didn't. It becomes, well, all of this is garbage because it's not this, 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 and this, like I did it. You know what I mean? It's very, it, it goes into arrogance instead of just, um, instead of just critique. And Rothko is, is the definition of pretentious throughout a lot of this show. Um, he's He's often, as we said before, he is not just criticizing the new movements uh, in the art world in his time. He's completely dismissing them as worthless because they're not, you know, they're not the worlds of art that he's been creating. And I think a lot of that also comes back from his insecurity and his fears. But he has this whole section, you know, where he's going, you know, Rembrandt and Rothko, Rembrandt and Rothko, Rothko and Rembrandt and Turner. And he's not even, you know, this is not a playing field other people have put him on. He's putting himself on this pedestal and saying, I am, I am one of the greats, you know. Uh, and another section, he talks about how he doesn't like to do, he doesn't like to paint outside. He literally says, quote, nature doesn't work for me. The light's no good. So literally sunlight's not even good enough for him. Um, and any time that... Ken says something that he does not inherently agree with, and this is up until the end of the play. Uh, he immediately just starts to demean and derail him. Um, there's a point where uh, he he's about to, to he's about to actually start painting. He's going to put brush to canvas, and he starts asking the painting, you know, oh come on, what do you need? What do you need? And um, Ken, thinking that he's talking to him, just kind of goes red. I, I think it needs red, and. Rothko throws the brush to the floor. He turns off the music and just starts screaming at him. He says, quote, By what right do you speak? By what right do you express an opinion on my work? Who the fuck are you? What have you done? What have you seen? Where have you earned the right to exist here with me and that these things that you don't understand? So in his anger, he just dismisses someone else because they're not good enough for him. It's a huge theme throughout the show. There's, people aren't good enough to see his artwork. People aren't good enough to see, you know, to, to com- comment on his artwork because he's so high above. And uh, eventually, Ken actually, again, he's had enough. And he says, quote, Nothing is ever good enough for you. 
Not even the people who buy your pictures. Museums are nothing but mausoleums. Galleries are run by pimps and swindlers. And art collectors are nothing but shallow social climbers. So who is good enough to own your art? Anyone? Or maybe the real question is, who's good enough to even see your art? Is it just possible no one's worthy to look at your paintings? Well, that's it, isn't it? We've all been weighed in the balance and have been found wanting. You say you spend your life in search of real human beings, people who can look at your pictures with compassion, but in your heart you no longer believe those people exist. So you lose faith, so you lose hope. So black swallows red. My friend, I don't think you'd recognize a real human being if he were standing right in front of you. Ken completely disrupts all of this pretension that he's been putting on. You know, he claims, oh, I just am seeking real humanity. And all the while, he's been pushing humanity away by living in his own pretension. So to answer the question, where is the line between artistry and pretension? Pretension pushes people away. Artistry invites people in. Even if it's not a pleasant view. Like, art doesn't have to be pleasant to invite people to view it. You want people to see the message that you're sending. But the second that you start saying, well, you know, these people are beneath me. They wouldn't understand it. Well, that's when you start making your... That's when you won't find human beings because you're pushing them all away. And this leads us to our next big question, which is, how should art be consumed and interpreted? Does the right of interpretation rest on the artist or on the viewer? And it's interesting because Rothko throughout the show is always telling Ken, oh, no, you're wrong. That's not what that means. That's not what that is. That's, you know, th this is this, that is that. But is that the right of the artist to tell people what their art actually means? Or should the piece stand on its own? There's this really interesting sequence in, in the second scene. It's right after um, Rothko has sort of screamed at Ken for interrupting his process. And Ken goes, well, no, I, I meant that I meant red like a sunrise. Like you should add this color because I'm seeing a sunrise in this. And Rothko immediately is like, sunrise is not red. Red is not sunrise. And uh, Ken comes back and he's like, no, yes, it is. Red is this, red is this. And they go back and forth saying, well, well, red is, you know, a rabbit's nose versus like red is arterial blood. And they're going back and forth and like what like the definition of red is. And it was really interesting because when you're watching it, you realize two, th I, I personally realized two things. One, for them, red means life, and life can mean a lot of different things. But two, how someone defines a piece of art and what they see in that piece, especially when it's abstract, is going to be so different person to person. But Rothko wants his specific vision to be seen. And I personally believe that the right of interpretation should fall on the viewer. If you create something, the piece should stand on its own, and if the piece is telling one person one thing and another person another, that's, that's totally fine, you know? If it's impacting people in different ways, at least it's impacting them. You know, they're not, they're not negating it. They're not dismissing it. They're, they're just having a different experience with it. And I think that that's, that's important. Um, so I don't think that the artist gets to dictate how a piece should be interpreted. They can tell you their interpretation. I think that's important, and that's, that makes it really interesting to see where the artist was coming from while creating. But that doesn't negate the viewer's experience. Um, and that leads me to the next question within this, within this little subsection. Uh, if artwork is outside of its ideal condition, is the work less, is the work less impactful? So should the artist get to say how that that piece is consumed, how it's set up, how the gallery is designed, where it goes in the room, so on and so forth. And I do think that there's actually a lot of worth in this argument. Um, you know, there's a scene where uh, Rothko's talking about how his pieces need, they need time, they need a specific place, and Ken kind of starts to see it, and he goes, oh my God, that's why you keep the lights so low. And he says, quote, to help the illusion like a magician, like a play, to keep it mysterious, to let the pictures pulsate. Turn on bright lights and the stage effect is ruined. Suddenly it's nothing but a bare stage with a bunch of fake walls. Then he flips on the light and says, the pictures in this light, they're flat, vulgar. The light hurts them. So if artwork is created for a specific environment, then, then yeah, I, I totally understand the artist wanting it to be shown in that environment, in that way. And I think it's why... 
Rothko is so against people buying his artwork to just put over, you know, put over the couch or, you know, just hang up in, you know, their random private collection because it doesn't respect the environment that he's trying to create. He literally says, quote, people think I'm controlling, controlling the light, controlling the height of the pictures, controlling the shape of the gallery. It's not controlling, it's protecting. A picture lives by companionship. It dies by the same token. It's a risky act to send it out into the world. And what's, what's interesting is as he's saying all of this, though, he's creating pieces for a restaurant in which he's not going to have any control over where those pieces are hung or how they're lit or or the design of the actual interior. And so again, you get back into hypocrisy. You know, he, he says that, you know, these things are so important, and yet he's creating work which is not going to adhere to any of these rules. Um, and I don't think that wanting to control that environment is inherently pretentious. I think that it's important. You know, he created it with this in mind. Um, but again, it's just interesting to note the... Uh, the polarity between his creation and what he's saying. Um, so in terms of how should art be consumed and should the artist have a say in that, I think so. I, I think that how your work is presented, especially if it's being presented as a, as a piece of art, not a piece of decoration, that the artist should, should absolutely have say in that. Um, lastly, in this section, uh, what is the difference between liking and respecting art. Now, this is interesting to me because I think it goes back to the whole art versus entertainment discussion. You can like something without respecting it. And on the other end, you can respect something without liking it. For example, um, you know, there are a lot of trashy reality TV shows. Do I inherently respect the creative process of creating a reality TV show? I can't say that I personally do. However, do I watch some of them? Absolutely. I, I enjoy watching that. You know what I mean? Uh, in terms of respecting things but not necessarily liking them, there are, there are some forms of, of high art that I can respect the time, the energy, the, the motivations that went into creating it, but it's not necessarily my cup of tea. So uh, about this, you know, he says, uh, Rothko says in scene one, he says, quote, Everyone likes things nowadays. They like the television and the phonograph and the soda pop and the shampoo and the Cracker Jack. Everything becomes everything else. And it's all nice and pretty and likable. Everything is fun in the sun. But where's the discernment? Where's the arbitration that separates what I like from what I respect, what I deem worthy, and what has significance? So I think it's a good question. You know, can we discern the difference between respecting a piece of art and liking a piece of art. And I think that Rothko, Rothko doesn't want people to like his art. He doesn't want people to like his art. He doesn't care if they like his art. They want them to, they want, he wants people to respect his art. Um, but unfortunately, the frank reality is, and this goes back to his fear of actually sending out his work, he doesn't get to control what people think of his stuff. He doesn't get to control where any of his commissions, you know, are hung, where they go, you know, private collectors get to take his things and put them wherever they want and then say whatever they want about it, you know? Um, and so I don't think that the artist necessarily gets to be involved with that process. I think that personally, um, I think the artist has to embrace that you create things based on what you are passionate about and then you put it out in, into the world for people to see because I, I do think that's an important part of the artistic process. I think that putting the material out there and letting people be impacted by it or have opinions on it is important. But then you don't get to control whether people like it or not or whether people respect it or not. The reality is there is going to be someone who doesn't like your work. There is going to be someone who does not respect your work. On the other end, there will most likely be someone who does like your work and who does respect your work, and you have to embrace that that's, that's outside of your control. Um, so yeah, finally, we're going to get to our last big question of this podcast, and that is, does commercialism destroy art? Now, we've sort of been dancing around this topic the entire podcast, um, but I think that it's really important and it's really essential to what the show has to say. 
so first and foremost, should art be created for the artist or for the consumer? For me, this goes back to art versus entertainment. If you're creating something strictly for the consumer, then you're not creating something that you are necessarily passionate about. In my brain, that's how you get strict entertainment. Uh, so I do think that art should always be created for intrinsic purposes uh, surrounding passion. However, you do see a lot of times uh, art being used as an investment or to buy class or as interior decorating. And, and, and Rothko says, you know, basically, quote, anything but what it actually is. And so while he's created his pieces for his own intrinsic purposes... I do think that you sort of have to embrace that commercialism is a reality. You know, we are going to create art and we're going to create things and we're going to put passion and we're going to put time into it. But ultimately, not everyone's going to view it as such. Ultimately, you know, like I said, you got to pay your bills. So, you know, selling artwork, uh, being a part of a piece, making money off of what you do is ultimately going to lead to some level of commercialism. And I don't think that that inherently destroys art, but it goes back to what we talked about with art versus entertainment. I think that it's important to maintain your artistic center. Um, and it's interesting because you sort of see Rothko battling with this himself because the entire time he's being a complete hypocrite. He's berating people for buying his art for the sole purpose of owning his art, and yet he's creating these pieces for some big corporation um, and very willingly taking their money. Uh, and, you know, Ken calls him out on this in scene four. You know, he says, quote, your intention is immaterial. Unless you're going to stand there for the rest of your life next to these pictures giving lectures, which you'd probably enjoy, the art has to speak for itself, yes? Just admit your hypocrisy. The high priest of modern art is painting a wall in the temple of, consum of consumption. You rail against commercialism in art, but pal, you're taking the money. These are nothing but the world's most expensive overmantles. And it's interesting because then he tries to defend himself. Uh, Rothko tries to defend himself. He talks about Michelangelo's Medici library in which uh, Michelangelo created all these false doors and these false windows and made people feel sort of trapped in this back stairwell. And he uses that as the inspiration for his artwork, saying, quote, I know that place is where the richest bastards in New York will come to feed and show off, and I hope to ruin the appetite of every son of a bitch who eats there. But Ken doesn't buy it. Ken says, I don't know that I believe you. It's too cruel to them. Your paintings aren't weapons. And you finally see Rothko have a moment of clarity here, and he goes, do you think I'm kidding myself? And Ken says, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, you are. And, you know, it's, it's interesting how far someone will go to sort of delude themselves about the reason that they're doing something, especially when it goes against their, their own ethics or their own ideas of what is right or wrong. Um, Rothko is so against commercialism. He doesn't believe in creating art for the sake of, of others. It's, he believes art is about creating something, in, again, based on your own intrinsic passion and he has convinced himself because that dollar sign was so high and because it would alleviate those fears of becoming insignificant. You know, he would have, you know, his paintings would always be there in this, in this huge famous restaurant. And he allowed his own fears to sort of overcome his own sense of um, ethics. Now, I don't personally believe that him selling artwork to a restaurant would have been the worst thing in the world. I think that you know, it was a commission, it was work, it was a job, it would have made him money. But, um, but again, it's interesting to see him, as Ken says, rail against commercialism in art and then sort of also buy into it at the same time. Now, ultimately, in the final scene of the play, you do see him call up um, the Seagram Corporation and tell them that he's sending back the money and he's not sending them the murals, he's keeping them for himself. Because he goes, and as we said earlier, he eats in the uh, he eats in the restaurant and realizes that that's not the place for his artwork. And sure, there's probably a little bit of arrogance and pretension in that, saying, this place isn't good enough for my artwork. But at the same time, at least he's sticking to his guns at that point, you know? Um, and so I think ultimately, 
what we see with Rothko is while I don't inherently agree with everything that he believes in regarding art, entertainment, and the combination of the two, he ultimately sticks to his values in the end. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I have to respect that. Absolutely. Um, so just like the last thing I want to say here uh, before I go, art comes in many different forms. You know, you have dancers, singers, painters, actors, um, musicians. And I think that as an artist, it is so important that you remember why you're doing what you do. I think it's really easy to kind of get bogged down by the nature of the business, you know, and, and I get it. You know, you need to make money. You're going to do projects you don't necessarily want to do. Sometimes you just want a job. But I think that even if it's on the side, you need to always be doing something that you're passionate about or else you're going to lose that fire. And um, I think that your artistic voice is, is too important. It's, t- it's too important to lose. So that's what I'll leave you with today. You know, go home and find something that you care about, something that you're passionate about, and figure out a way to do it. Even if it's just sitting at home by yourself, painting a picture that you might never show anyone. It's important. It's really, really important. Hey guys, I hope that you enjoyed today's analysis. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow Danalyzed on the podcast platform of your choice, whether that's Spotify, Apple, Google, etc. And be sure to tune in next week for all new content coming at you every Thursday. Also, be sure to check us out on Instagram at at Dan underscore Alized. That's spelled D-A-N underscore A-L-Y-Z-E-D. I post updates, previews, discussion topics. And if you have something that you would like to hear on the show, be sure to reach out to that account directly. If you want to keep up with me, you can follow me on Instagram at at Dan underscore J Hoy. Until next time, my name is Dan Hoy. This has been Danalyzed. Thank you so much for listening and have a spectacular rest of your day.